Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Should we hold a musician's artistic output to a moral standard? When an artist acts reprehensibly, can we still enjoy the art? This week, we talk separating the art from the artist. Plus, we're going to review new albums from Queens of the Stone Age and The National. And we'll pay tribute to Steely Dan co-founder Walter Becker. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And coming up, we're going to review new music by the National and Queens of the Stone Age. But first, we're talking about separating art from artist. Can you appreciate the artistic output of someone when he or she has done some horrible things? That is a very difficult question, Jim, and it's uh, one that we've been thinking a lot about here uh, in recent weeks, uh, in large measure because of your recent reporting in BuzzFeed about R. Kelly. Now, remind us about the stories that have run already. Uh, Greg, you know, there were two stories this summer, one in July and one in August, but really the R. Kelly story dates back until the mid-'90s. Uh, where he has allegedly abused his position of wealth and fame to pursue illegal underage relationships uh, with young women. Um, It's a harrowing story. He, of course, married Leah when she was 15 under a falsified wedding uh, license. There have been uh, four public lawsuits filed against him and many out-of-court cash settlements. He was tried and acquitted uh, on uh, 14 counts of making child pornography. My latest stories are about uh, Kelly allegedly housing several legal-age women who are subject to a strict regimen of rules, and if they break any of them, they are physically and mentally abused. They're separated from their families. The parents uh, in two families very much want their daughters back. They're 21 and 18. And the follow-up story was about yet another young woman who uh, began a relationship with him uh, at age 16, not long after. She met him, Greg, in the courtroom while he was being tried for child pornography, facing 15 years uh, behind bars. Uh, This sexual relationship for this young woman went on for about eight months. She also alleged physical and mental abuse. Um, Yet he's had one of the most successful careers in the history of R&B. Yeah, this is a story that is not new, Jim, in terms of separating the art from the artist. It is something that uh, is part of all art forms, really, and certainly rock and roll in the rock and roll era. We're going back to the days of Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, controversial figures, important artistic figures uh, whose troubled personal lives 
you know, we have to deal with when, when discussing their art. Uh, we certainly wrestle with this issue all the time, and we're going to be talking about it today. We're joined by Britt Julius, a Chicago journalist who has written for the Chicago Tribune, Esquire, L, and others. Thank you for having me. And Mark Anthony Neal, a professor of African and African-American studies at Duke. Hey, great to be on. Let me start with a quote by Oscar Wilde, and I want to get both of your reactions to it. So Oscar Wilde, the great critic and philosopher of Victorian England, said, uh, I'm paraphrasing because he was talking about books, but he said, art is neither moral nor immoral. It is merely good or bad. So, Britt, do you buy that? Is there a moral core to art? I think so. I think that... um I think not all art operates uh, under a moral core, uh, but I think that it it exists. I think that especially, you know, art that is maybe dealing with uh, issues of feminism or race or gender, things like that. I think that that's sort of operating under um, the idea of trying to, you know, get at the root of individual rights and, you know, sharing people's perspectives and and things like that. So for me, I think that, you know, it can, you know, and it should maybe have a moral core, but it doesn't always have that. Mark, uh, you've been wrestling this with this for your entire critical and academic career. So moral or no? I, I have to agree with, with Oscar Wilde, right? I think I think art is art. I think morality plays into it in terms of what we're going to do with that art, how we circulate that art, what kind of meanings we derive from that art. Um, I, I always like to think that the art is pure. The artists are not pure. No, no, um, human the beings. Art itself, no, no human right, being right. is pure, right. <laughs> Right. Uh, but the art is, is an expression of this particular person, this particular entity of being trying to express something artistic. Of course, everything that gets expressed is an art, and, and that's a, another part of the conversation, right? Mm. Who gets to choose what is art and what isn't? You know, I've been wrestling with Kelly as I wrestled with Miles Davis, as you can wrestle with Marvin Gaye. Um, James you Brown. Know, there's no... Yeah. James Brown. I mean, there's no defense of Kelly, uh, but Kelly does exist in a, in a fundamentally different, you know, media context um, where we know so much more about R. Kelly and, and in some ways because he has let us know so much more about R. Kelly than we would ever know about, you know, Marvin Gaye and James Brown or Bill Withers, you know, beyond what would have been a Jet magazine article, you know, yeah. 35 years ago. Very often when I look at Mr. Kelly and, and what he individually represents, it's as much an indictment of who he is as a human being as it is for people who have supported him. And and, and that's where, you know, for me, it was the final break. Um, I'm one of those folks who actually thinks that when you look at his body of work, there is some art there, right? This sure. isn't just a dude who was trying to make hits. Um, but at some point, the fact that he becomes such this compelling, compelling figure that folks continue to go back and support him, that's as much an indictment about us and, and what we're willing to accept in our artists as it is as much an indictment of who he is. There's this uh, area, in, especially in popular culture, I think, where transgressive behavior uh, is expected sometimes, even condoned or championed, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. You're cooler because of that. You are more authentic because you actually did hold up a, a, a gas station and dealt drugs as a rapper, let's say, or as a rock and roller. 
uh, Jimmy Page is not diminished at all by the fact that he had groupies and, uh, you know, a relationship with a 14-year-old girl in the early 70s. I mean, back in the day, that kind of behavior seemed to be more a, a, a stamp of, oh, that, that's true rock and roll. Britt, you, you were arguing against that. You said that's you don't you don't buy that at all. No, I mean, I think that made it that might have you know made sense you know thirty, forty, fifty years ago when that was sort of how we expected you know rock stars to perform. But I think that the way that we listen to and consume music is a lot different <laughs> than it was back then. And I think you know in large part they were you know a lot of artists like that were sort of playing into specific you know tropes and it was presented as a specific way to fit into a rock and roll ideal. I think people aren't necessarily relying on that anymore when it comes to the music that they're consuming. In which case you know. We don't need to and we shouldn't be accepting, you know, Okay, well, they're just going to do whatever they want to, because that's what is accepted of them as, you know, a rock musician or as a rapper or things like that. At some point, we have to sort of ask, Okay, well, what are we going to continue to allow to accept? Is it okay for these people to do it? But then in real life, it's not okay. Like, where's the line? So you're saying, you know, standards change the way we perceive things change. But does that wipe out for you the work of James Brown or Miles Davis or even Picasso, who was, you know. Notoriously nice abusive yeah. of, of women and, right. and and his many wives, uh, you know, the, the the list goes on and on of of artists who have had these really uh, transgressive, even criminal backgrounds, personal histories, and yet made great art in either in spite of it or because of it. I'm not sure right. what the real answer is. I think that that art that was maybe made before I was sort of, you know, aware of what the artist was doing. For me, I've kind of drawn that line where I'm like, okay, like I grew to love it and understand it before I sort of had the perspective or knowledge of what was actually taking place. But I think now as we're seeing, you know, artists, even like like the group, you know, um, uh, Power Bottom, Power and, yeah. you know, that was, that was a very swift sort of, you know, as soon as we found that out, you know, everyone was just sort of like, well, we're done with them. Like that's just, yeah. that's just how it is. So I think that we're learning and we're getting better at it. I don't think that I'm perfect. I don't think that anyone is perfect. So you think people now are more quote unquote woke. Yes. And the internet makes people aware. <laughs> yes. Mark is laughing at that one. <laughs> well, because we have seen in indie rock, we've seen several uh, conflicts. Uh, Power Bottom was this indie rock group just about to put out this record and there was an accusation of, of sexual assault and they were dropped by their label and vilified overnight. Um, R. Kelly, the first lawsuit was filed in the mid-90s. Yeah. Well, Mark, do you buy that digital culture is changing? You know, the Internet piece is interesting because, you know, the reason why you're talking about this now on BuzzFeed is because there's a whole new generation now that can take him the task for it in ways that folks weren't established to be able to do that before. Mm-hmm. I think the classic takedown of Bill Cosby is another example, right? When Bill Cosby comes a thing again, you know, three or four years ago, that some of us are going like, we've known this for decades, right? Why is this a thing now? Right, right. Well, now because a young generation now is attuning their attention to it, and now they have different array of tools to be able to use to actually hold folks accountable. So I I think Kelly's being held accountable in a way now, right, that he hadn't been in the past. Absolutely. You know, my initial instinct is that every anybody can say anything because that's that's our that's our country is built on that. If I, we can't, I would think that all four of us here are free speech absolutists. Our artists can express themselves in any way they see fit. But where do we hold accountable people like the record companies that put that music out, the agents who book those tours, the promoters who uh, you know sign them up to play arenas? The, the ticket buyers themselves who are supporting 
this artist with their cash. No, there's a haunting um, line in my interview with a woman who had an underage sexual relationship with Kelly who said, everybody in my life, all my friends, my family loved R. Kelly, and I, my favorite radio station was WGCI, who played him every half hour. Mm-hmm. Is GCI responsible? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it goes right down the line. I think everybody has to look in their own conscience, right, Mark? I mean, I, it seems to me like it's almost like a personal decision how you deal with it. it you, you know, as soon as we start imposing, like, you cannot say this on our record, you know, you must go away and, and, and never, that, never record again. You know, we're and in trouble. And says back, you know, when he, when he finally gets brought up on charges, um, you know, the first line of defense here should have been to go after radio stations that continued to play his music. Um, but, of course, there was no larger infrastructure in place to really hold radio accountable in that kind of way. There was no way to target radio with a black Twitter campaign, for instance, or, you know, to do all these kinds of things that social media has given us a tool. You know, so black radio played what they thought their audience wanted to hear, and they continued to play R. Kelly, and he continued to be something, somebody who was represented as okay within that context, right? Because you could imagine people saying, well, like, if, Really, if he's been accused, why are they still playing his records, right? Mm-hmm. He, he must not be right. You know, let's have him as day in court. And, and, of course, the fact that he was acquitted just complicates this even more. I think when it when it comes to, to someone like R. Kelly, though, like from I guess the more I think about it, the more confused I am because it's not like he's releasing a whole bunch of, like, new music. It's not—do you know what I mean? Like, it's well, not he like he he's this— He put out a Christmas album. But uh, even in, that— In November, and he went on The Tonight Show on December 23rd and got a big old bear hug from mm-hmm. Jimmy Fallon after singing his Christmas songs. It's so strange to me because it's not like he, you know, he's at the the, the top of people's thoughts when it comes to, you know, the best sort of contemporary right. R&B musicians. Yeah. No, and no. yet the radio stations will still play, you know, Step in the Name of Love as if, you know, it just came out, you know, three yeah. or four months ago. He doesn't ago. own the world the way he once did. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. it's a good point. And, you know, I think also a factor here is, you know, you practically grow up with an artist like this, right? And he was this kind of celebrated figure uh, in Chicago for a long time. He was, you know, larger than life. He still is, too, for some people. Yeah, there are murals on the south side. And once you've hit a certain level, it's very hard to knock that person way down to the bottom again because they've built up so much... I hate to use a term like goodwill, but it's certainly a sense of stature. And whereas a band like Power Bottom, they're just starting out. Exactly. Nobody really knows who they are. And they go, oh, you're accused of sexual assault? No way, man. I'm not listening to another note you play. That should be the response to R. Kelly at this point. You know, I've gotten to the point where I can't even listen to a record of his anymore. I think for a lot of people, it's just like it's really hard for them to take that next step and say he doesn't mean anything to me anymore. Because he obviously did mean something to you, right, Britt? I mean, you're, he Chicago. meant something to you yeah, at he, some point. He did. I think um, it was really hard for me to to separate, um, especially when I was younger, like R. Kelly, the artist, from the R. Kelly that I knew because I was very aware of the trial growing up and, you know, um, its connections, you know, to my school and, you know, everyone I knew, especially, you know, my sister's age is a couple years older than me. They all had some sort of like R. Kelly story. But, you know, I also grew up really loving I Believe I Could Fly, right? Like that was my age group. And so it yeah. was really targeted to me in that way. And I think also in Chicago, we have, you know, we sort of obsess over our, our you know, hometown heroes or our celebrities in a way that 
maybe people from other places don't. I believe I can fly. He was collaborating with Michael Jordan. Exactly. You know, the two greatest Chicago heroes yeah. of all the time. The 90s, like it was just, you know, so. But yeah, I think kind of like what you were saying, Greg, you kind of have to work through it eventually. I think for me, the older I got as a woman and having my own experiences in terms of, you know, um, you know, sort of having to face like, you know, sexual assault or sexual violence, that really sort of changed things for me. It's like, why am I supporting someone when I know what my own life has been like, when I know what my friends' life, you know, lives have been like, what they have faced, what they continue to face? I'm being a hypocrite, you know? I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm completely not showing up for people in the way that I should. I'm making some sort of an exception because of a song? That's silly. That doesn't make any sense. And as a music fan, there's so many other songs and, and artists right. that I can enjoy who don't have that sort of, that, you know, that history, that violence, that baggage that's attached to them as well. I always tell my students, you know, whether it's Birth of a Nation or, or uh, uh, Eminem, right? It's like, look, there's no right and wrong in, or wrong in art. I just think if you are a thoughtful consumer of culture or just somebody who loves music, all right, well, whatever, if you love this, you must respect it. And part of respecting is knowing what's the story here? What is the message of this art and where is it coming from? Who is the person who's bringing it? Yeah. There's so many other artists that I love, um, and I love their music because of their autobiographical background, you know, and how mm-hmm. that sort of plays a role into like the lyrics of the music or, you know, where they were in their personal life, how that sort of like, you know, developed into like an album or a song. And so I really appreciate that, you know, so I, I, for myself, it's like, how can I, you know, in one hand, you know, really love that and really like, appreciate that in an artist, but then also, you know, with an artist like R. Kelly or other artists who are similar to them, who, you know, a lot, as we've said, of their, you know, their 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 background sort of plays a role into the art that they're actually creating. It's how right. Yeah, how could I then ignore it? It just it doesn't make any sense. You know, we have been talking a lot about black male figures in this discussion, Mark and Britt. Um, stereotyping, how, how big of a factor, racism, how big of a factor is that in the way these cultural figures are perceived versus their uh, white male counterparts, let's say? Britt, what do you think? Um, I think I think it is, you know, a, a factor. Um uh, is it the biggest factor? I don't know. Um, but I do think, you know, the example, like a very, you know, recent example I can think of is, is something like a Nate Parker um, versus a Casey Affleck and how mm. that sort of situation was really handled. Um, and, you know, uh, Casey Affleck had, you know, a lot of institutional support, um, you know, through his brother and, you know, his brother's best friend. Pretty good thrashing, though. He did, but it wasn't, you know, but he still won the Oscar. He's still, you know, he's, you know, he's still in more, you know, his campaign to, you know, to to win that Oscar. You know, there's always the Oscar campaigns was somewhat tarnished. But, you know, again, like I feel like a lot of editorials that I was seeing, they were, you know, on women's interest site, like a Jezebel or a place like that. It wasn't necessarily the sort of thing. Um, like a Bill Cosby where it's making the cover of New York Magazine, right? And Woody Allen still gets the honors. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I, there definitely is um, a, a difference in, in terms of the perception of it. Is it um, the the biggest factor? Is it is it the thing that really separates, you know, um, who does sort of, you know, get completely like ostracized or removed from the, the you know, artistic or entertainment community? I don't know. I, ca- I can't necessarily say. Right. I mean, but, th- but that's the rub, right? The fact that black men have historically been depicted as sexual predators can't keep us from holding accountable those black men who actually are sexual predators. Yep. Yeah. I think, and very often, you know, some of these figures, depending on how big their celebrity ha- has been, have been able to protect themselves because they knew the community was sensitive 
to the fact that black men have been portrayed historically as uh, sexual predators. I mean, it's one of the reasons why when you look at folks who close ranks around these figures, you know, what's almost alarming as the R. Kelly case is the fact that in many cases it's been black women who have closed ranks around him. Mm. It's been black women who've been critical of the girls who he assaulted and he raped and he attacked, right? Again, out of this idea that we need to protect black men. I'm sure one of the narratives that we're going to deal with now, even as his R. Kelly story continues to be something of significance, is, you know, why are we talking about R. Kelly when all this other stuff is happening, right? Well, because even if we have to fight a fight around the reemergence of white supremacy and Nazis and white nationalists, we still have to make sure that we don't have sexual predators in our community. You know, there's a way in which we have to do both of those things at the same time, right? In fact, it demeans us to not deal with the reality of race as we live race in the world yeah. and not also deal with the fact that there are sexual predators within our community. The question I have as we're going forward from this, have lessons been learned? Is there a sense of we are going to hold artists to a higher standard now uh, as a result of the revelations that Jim has been reporting about R. Kelly and it's the power bottom you incident. Know, and, and, how about and, and, Woody Allen? Yeah. How I about mean, if Bill Cosby wanted Bill, to make one Bill last Cosby. Cosby, you know, album or or Roman yeah. Polanski finally comes back to the United States of America? Right? I think in the digital world, you, you're seeing, you know, <laughs> one Twitter account can ruin your your career. You know, uh, are we going to? What do you think, Britt? I think going forward, are, are, have lessons been learned? Are we going to be seeing uh, more accountability? Uh, from our artists? I think there will be more accountability, but I think that um, as we've we've kind of seen out and, and we've kind of discussed um, a little bit, it, the way that it plays out is different for different types of artists. So, you know, I, from what I've seen, it seems to be, you know, a lot of male artists, they have to really do a lot of damage, you know, um, for, for us to sort of take them into account versus maybe like an up-and-coming artist or even just, you know, like a, like a female pop star, you know, tweets the wrong thing and suddenly people are like, you know, Katy Perry is canceled party, things or, like that. Or Kathy you know, Griffin uh, takes yeah. a photo that's in bad taste, and like, boy, she's vilified right. instantly. Exactly. Right. And so, yeah. So, I think that there there will be more. There will be, and there has been more accountability. But I don't think it's going to necessarily play out for every type of artist in the way that it should. Mm-hmm. There's a double standard, I Absolutely. think, right? For Absolutely. men and for powerful men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mark, what do you think? And I mean, I look at uh, the career arc of someone like. Rick Ross, um, who's really at the point in his career where he can never say anything publicly about women again. Um, one, because everything he says is so stupid um, and ridiculous, right? But but systematically, folks have been holding him accountable for some of his commentary, right? So that accountability piece is in place in ways that it hasn't been before. The step is, how do you get beyond that accountability to actually having these larger corporations that sustain these artists also be accountable also. I mean, that's where it's kind of interesting, right? In some ways, Rick Ross is low-hanging fruit. He's not all that important to folks, right? When you think about artists who are much more powerful and much more visible and, and are holding up many more of the bottom lines of so many other corporate interests, you know, that's where it becomes a challenge, right? You know, it's, it's the difference between if we were going after, say, an Ezekiel Elliott in some sort of context and if we're talking about professional sports versus LeBron James, right? It'd be so much more difficult to hold LeBron James accountable because, you know, there's just a whole, all these other structures in which he matters in ways that Ezekiel Elliott doesn't. We have been talking to Mark Anthony Neal, professor of African and African-American studies at Duke University, and Britt Julius, uh, critic and writer for numerous publications, including the Chicago Tribune, New York Times, Esquire, 
et cetera. We've been talking about separating art from the artist. Uh, Britt, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. As always, we want to hear from you. Do you think about musicians' actions when listening to their art? Are there certain musicians that you morally wrestle with? Leave a message on our hotline and tell us about it. 888-859-1800. Coming up, we review the latest from Queens of the Stone Age and The National. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, my partner's Jim DeRigatis, and we've got some new music to review. The system only dreams in total darkness. Why are you hiding from me? We're in a different kind of thing now. All night you're talking to God. That is The System Only Dreams in Total Darkness, the first single, A Real Mouthful, from the new national album called Sleep Well Beast, the seventh studio album from this band, which originated in Ohio in the 90s before moving up to uh, New York City and Brooklyn. We have a set of brothers in this band, Aaron Dessner and Bryce Dessner, and then Scott Devendorf and Brian Devendorf, plus vocalist Matt Berninger. They've been together for nearly 20 years. The second national album, Sad Songs for Dirty Lovers, in 2003 was, was where they really started getting their sound together. They started working with the New York production team. Prior to that, they'd been sort of cast as this pseudo-Americana band. Nobody really knew where to fit them. Uh, but their identity really started to form with that second album, Alligator was a commercial breakthrough in 2005. By the time of uh, 2013's Trouble Will Find Me, their last previous album, uh, they were a a, a Billboard-ranked band, number three debut in the country uh, in 2013, sold more than a quarter million copies in the U.S. alone, nomination for a Grammy, playing major festival slots throughout the world. Uh, The National had arrived on an international platform by album number six. Now the the four-year wait for album number seven is over. Sleep Well Beast is here. Here's a track from it. It's called Turtleneck on Sound Opinions.
From Sleep Well Beast by the national album number seven. Uh, Greg, as you mentioned, it's coming to us after a four year wait. Uh, the most interesting thing I think that happened in that break was that Bryce Desner uh, did the film score for that movie, The Revenant, and it was a really interesting score. I think uh, this is his album as much as it is Matt Berninger. Berninger always gets the attention, right? He's the vocalist. He's the witty lyricist. Berninger's always writing, sometimes with his wife, songs about troubles in their marriage. I gather he is quite happily married, but every marriage has ups and downs, and he loves to talk about them in quite dramatic terms. Uh, we have one song here, uh, Karen at the Liquor Store. That's about his wife, and and they're always having, having troubles. Uh, I guess he gets it out in the music. Anyway, Desner has been doing interesting things. There are touches of synthesizer and electronic experimentation in a sort of radiohead vein and always interesting guitar work and i think that that is what makes this album uh distinguished among the nationals catalog it is a pretty consistent catalog and i've been up and down with it i i thought trouble will find me one of their most popular albums uh suffered from having way too much u2 in it on the other hand i gave high violet a buy it when we reviewed it on the album i i will give this album a buy it too the sense of humor in uh, the National is not always evident, and, and I need a little of that when the music is as as discreet and mature mm. and adult mm. as this. Those are not good words in the Jim Deere Goddess uh, pantheon. Uh, I, 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 there is a great line, though, one of my favorite lyrics ever. I have dreams of anonymous castrati mm. singing <laughs> to us from the trees. Mm. I want more of that. I got to laugh when I'm mired in this much, uh, you know, mid-tempo kind of soul-searching. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it, it is a fun album, uh, even if it is a bit heavy. So a buy it from me. Uh, Jim, to me, uh, the the, uh, the National have been a very consistent band, and, and you did rightly point out that there are some differences in, in this record. Uh, in part, I think the uh, the way the, the keyboards, and not only the keyboards, but the electronics, the use of electronics is sort of a disruptive advice, sort of this, this queasy undertow that, uh, you know, sort of rising and bubbling underneath the uh, uh, the arrangements in this record is kind of a new thing for them. Yeah, some of that noise almost sounds like an old dial-up modem. Yeah. It made me very nostalgic for AOL. There are some kind of old-school sounds on there, but they're in a creepy kind of way, and I think that adds, in addition to the uh, the orchestration that would, would uh, well up in, in some of these songs as well, giving this whole record sort of an eerie, uh, moody vibe.
You know, Berninger, in a couple of interviews I've seen with him, has talked about these songs, these love songs, or these relationship songs that you were discussing, sort of in political terms. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you can avoid, uh, you know, the mentions in the song we just played, Turtleneck. You know, this must be the genius we've been waiting years for, uh, talking about yet another politician who is making uh, promises that they can't keep. Uh, This sort of sense of, um, you know, just general... um, Discussed like okay, here comes another guy who's going to promise me things that uh, that are never going to happen, and and the country keeps going uh, in into deeper disarray. Well, well, I, I definitely you know, sense that mood in this record. It's true that song "Walk It Back." You know, he actually reaches back, Greg, to the uh, W era to quote Karl Rove about about the uh, unreality of the current situation, and he compares the unreality of politics to the weird feelings in his marriage after uh, they've been in through through a down period. Yeah, and and so I think that that comes across really well here. It, it, it's not in your face. It's it's a it's a political record, but it's not an overt one. But if you pay attention, you know, again, I think Berninger is one of those lyricists that you know you do need to pay attention to because he's very good at what he does. Uh, his delivery. The thing I loved loved about the National in the past is when they would sort of have that simmering underneath thing going on, and then it would explode. You know, there would mm-hmm. be just this moment in every song where Berninger would just kind of lose his mind for a minute. There would be this, this hysterical breakthrough. Uh, there's less of that on this record, and I do miss that. Uh, I think for that reason, the first half of the record to me is very good. The second half is a little bit samey sounding, but I got to say that dark side of the gym, mm-hmm. that sort of doo ish ballad at the end, that's a real sleeper cut for me. I'm gonna keep you Uh, that's one of the best things they've done, and you probably won't notice it because it's like the second to last song on the record. But I think it's it's one of the better songs on the record, and it really redeems the second half for me. I'm going to give it a buy it as well. That is a little bit of a song with a great title, The Evil Has Landed, Greg, by Queens of the Stone Age from their seventh album as well, Villains. Queens of the Stone Age, I think, has been one of the most prominent bands in hard rock almost since its debut in the mid-90s when Josh Homme formed the band out of the ashes of Caius, one of those great desert rock, stoner rock bands that predominated from the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Queens has had a fascinating career. The albums uh, are all a little bit different. Uh, Hami really is the only key member who's been on all of them. At different times, they've had incredible drummers like Dave Grohl, uh, formerly of Nirvana. Uh, Loved the band so much, he took a hiatus from the Foo Fighters to work with it. With Queens of the Stone Age, there have been a lot of guest turns at different points. Uh, some some pretty phenomenal ones, whether we're talking Mark Lanigan of Screaming Trees or even Elton John has popped up on Queens records. This time, he is taking it down 
to the core band with whom he's been touring and playing most recently. I think uh, the multi-instrumentalist guitarist keyboardist Dean Fertitta is is really the core of that band. Uh, pretty good rhythm section, too. John Theodore used to play with Mars Volta, Michael Schumann on bass. Uh, no guess, Greg. Mm-hmm. Just uh, in the studio, Queens of the Stone Age doing their thing, but with an interesting producer, Mark Ronson, uh, best known for his kind of retro approach to doing pop and soul dance records. And Hami has said, apparently with a straight face, that he was a huge fan of Uptown Funk by Bruno (laughs) Mars. Uh, Hence this collaboration. What does the music sound like? Let's play a track from Villains by Queens of the Stone Age. This is called Feet Don't Fail Me on Sound Opinions. From Queens of the Stone Age, the new album is called Villains. Uh, Jim, you'd mentioned that uh, here we have Josh Homme uh, collaborating with an uh, perhaps uh, unpredictable, unconventional choice for a producer, at least for a Queens of the Stone Age record, Mark Ronson. Uh, not not the first guy on your list that you would think, oh, he'd be working with Josh Homme on the new record. Uh, lo and behold, I think it's kind of a red herring. Um, I, I think everybody was thinking, oh, it's gonna he's going to turn it into an Amy Winehouse or a Bruno Mars <laughs> record. Uh, that's not at all what happens. I do think that Ronson perhaps encouraged uh, uh, Homme to bring out some of the dancier elements in the music or the more uh, rhythmically uh uh, moving parts in the music and sort of uh, uh, upgrade those a little bit because I do sense uh, a tension here in the record between what he's singing about and obviously villains kind of typecast what's what exactly is going on. Uh, he is singing about these villains, these uh, these monsters in the closet, under the bed, in our heads. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, and and what's happening in the country right now? We we drew some pol- political parallels uh, to the lyrics in the national record, and I think you hear the same thing 
in Queens of the Stone Age. Any sentient being uh, who is making art these days, I don't know how you can avoid that topic. Uh, and it, it, it certainly filters in uh, to some of these songs. But, you know, Hami is basically saying, okay, we've got these issues in, in these lyrics, these sort of dark lyrics, but we're going to dance our butts off and, 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 and sort of cure our ills for at least an, the next hour or two. Um, so that's, that's what I hear going on in the music. And I think for the most part, it works. Dean Fertina, I think he has become a true, true uh, collaborator with uh, Josh Homme in, in the way that few other musicians in Queens of the Stone Age ha- have been. Uh, hey, you and, have to and, go back to Nick Oliveri. And, and, and Nick was a, a crazy man. I think yes, the was. craziness was, was Nick Oliveri's thing. Often naked. Fertitta gives, gives you these extraterrestrial things in the music that are, you know, definitely uh, take Queens of the Stone Age out of the realm of a conventional rock band into something more interesting and, and more elastic. And, and John Theodore sort of anchors, gives that rock ballast in the, in the rhythm section. He is a great drummer. You mentioned his uh, tenure in Mars Volta. Um, he is equally great here. Hami is coming off working with Iggy Pop on a, a very good 2016 album called Post Pop Depression, which referenced Iggy's Berlin period working mm-hmm. with uh, with David Bowie. I hear a lot of glam. I hear a lot of electronic disco from that era in this record. been a lot of kraut rock in Queens from the beginning. Absolutely. I think there's been sort of this sense of, of Queens was sort of coasting the last few albums. I don't think that at all. I think this is a record that is uh, that is a quite fine work that that stands up to their earliest work. It's a buy it record for me. Yeah, it's definitely a buy it, Greg. And I, I, I would just add the caveat to people who may not know Queens that when you say it's danceable, <laughs> yeah, it, right. it, it's, it's one of the most droney dance albums I've ever heard. But it's rhythmically innovative, I think, too, at the same time. Yes, it is. It is. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think the rhythms are fascinating always. I think the riffs are engaging. You know, lyrically, you were giving more credit to the lyrics than I've ever given Queens. I think that they're intentionally buried in the mix. They're just one other element of this wall of sound. I really was uh, 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 gripped, though, by Feet Don't Fail Me, which is kind of autobiographical. Hami knows. We've had him on the show. He's a very smart and very rather friendly guy. You know, don't let the muscles scare you. (laughs) But he likes to play up this kind of um, villain-esque mythology. I was born in the desert, May 17 in 73 he sings on that song when the needle hit the groove I commenced to moving I was chasing what's calling me I think that the entire career of Queens of the Stone Age since that self-titled debut in 1998 is about forward motion the kind of uh, driving you can only do on one of those two-lane desert highways when you're not going to see another car for for hours and there's nothing happening but like scorpions out in the sand Mm -hmm. that's what Queens of the Stone Age does best as far as I'm concerned so yeah Yes, an enthusiastic double buy it. But what do you think? Give us a call and leave a message on our hotline at 888-859-1800 or connect with us through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. When we come back from a break, we remember two musicians who recently passed on, Walter Becker of Steely Dan and Holger Shukai from the influential kraut rock band Can. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Irigatis, and that's a little bit of Reeling in the Years from Steely Dan. We're paying that in tribute to uh, one of Steely Dan's founders, Walter Becker, who died September 30th at the age of 67. Uh, a lot of people uh, probably really don't know a lot about Walter Becker. They know that name Steely Dan. If they associate the band with any one person, it's probably Donald Fagan, who sang the bulk of their lyrics. But Walter Becker was, let's make no mistake about it, he was a co-leader, a co-founder, uh, a co-creator in that band from beginning to end. Uh, and without him, the band would not have been what it was. Uh, basically, Fagan would say that, you know, I'd fi- start a thought and, and, and Walter would finish it or vice versa. They were inside each other's heads, it seemed, having met in the mid-60s at Bard College in New York and uh, continuing the career. They started Steely Dan as more or less a traditional uh, rock band uh, in in the early 70s out in Los Angeles after moving there to become a songwriting team. That was sort of ill-fated because their songs were just too darn weird for other people to want to cover them. But uh, they ended up, um, you know, forming this band Steely Dan. And within short time after that first album where uh, you heard the song uh, reeling in the years, uh, they basically became a duo with a rotating mm-hmm. cast of session musicians in the group. Uh, the one thing that needs to be uh, emphasized here is that not only were Fagan and Becker accomplished uh, songwriters and lyricists, but they were both excellent musicians who could play multiple instruments. Uh, Becker, in particular, uh, played bass on many of the tracks and uh, lead guitar on, on many others, uh, for which he was not uh, generally celebrated, but he was genuinely a, uh, a tremendous musician. Um, you know, here are these transplanted New Yorkers, right? These kind of wise guys raised on Vonnegut and beat writers mm-hmm. and, 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 and great jazz and early blues. They were really aficionados of pre-rock and roll forms of music. And they end up in Los Angeles, which is just a den of iniquity. <laughs> and they are finding fodder for great songs everywhere they look. That sneering sense of sarcasm and, and skepticism bordering on cynicism creeping through every lyric. Uh, they had a great time with it. There was this great sense of humor in it, often black humor, uh, combined with this excellent musicianship. Now, some people give them a lot of stick. They were kind of slick sounding. Uh, Becker had a great line. I interviewed him a couple of times. He said, we were encoding higher cultural information <laughs> in cheesy pop songs played by a rock and roll band. It was basically, we're infiltrating, yeah. uh, we're infiltrating the top 40 uh, with this stuff. Because th- there was a jazz sensibility at, at the base of a lot of the songs. You know, Horace Silver quotes uh, Thelonious Monk. Uh, there was some Ravel in there from classical music. These guys were, 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 uh, were music aficionados. But at the same time, they, they had fun with pop music. Uh, the song I want to play is uh, from their uh, Katie Lyde record. It's called uh, Black Friday. And the reason I'm playing it is there's not only a great bass part from Walter Becker on it, but a great guitar solo. They had great guitars in this band. Jeff Skunk Baxter was in there for a while, Danny Diaz. Uh, but whenever they weren't hearing quite what they wanted, you know, Walter, you do it. Yeah, and Walter yeah, would jump yeah. in there and, and play the exact perfect part. There was a there was a sense about Walter's leads that they weren't quite so precise. There was a little more of a frayed quality to them. And I think you're going to hear some of that here. Uh, Black Friday from Steely Dan on Sound Opinions. 
That is Walter Becker with the lead guitar and bass on Black Friday from Steely Dan on Sound Opinions in tribute to Walter Becker, dead at the age of 67. So From Steely Dan to Can, Greg, uh, uh, we're marking another sad death. Holger Schukai, the co-founder and bassist of the German art rock band Can, passed away on September 5. He was 79 years old. Um, you know, do in juxtaposing Can and Steely Dan, are we saying Can is as important as Steely Dan? Yes, I would say for my personal aesthetic, even more oh, yeah. so. Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is a band that 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 connects the Velvet Underground with much of modern electronic experimental art. There is no Radiohead, for example, imaginable without Can. Uh, Zhukai uh, had a fascinating life. He's born in 1938 in the free city of uh, Danzig, formerly Gdansk, Poland. Is kicked out uh, after World War II with his family. Never even uh, attended high school. Worked in a radio repair shop, and he was fascinated with shortwave radio broadcasts and taking radios apart and making them inst- into instruments. That would uh, be a key feature in a lot of canned music. Uh, but I think he was one of those great Polish poet philosophers, okay? I'm gonna, I, I got to read you some Holger quotes. In a studio, you make a concert for machines, and machines really like to listen. <laughs> and he also loved to say, any music without energy, I throw to my tape machine starving eraser heads. You will not be surprised to know that he later collaborated with the great Brian Eno. I think these are two guys who thought deeply <laughs> and philosophically about music. But he also worked with Jaha Wobble and The Edge and uh, David Sylvain. He did some work with the Eurythmics. And he was a techno DJ when he was like in his 70s. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, would, you could be at a rave in Berlin apparently and look up and there is Holger uh, dancing and playing these records. His bass playing was supremely simple. Many of the bass lines are only two or three notes, and I think that's what made Can's music rock and roll, because Jaki Leipzig, uh, the great drummer who died uh, in January, we paid tribute to him, uh, was was a wonderful jazz and world rhythms kind of player, and uh, he w- was you know one of the most musical elements of Can, while Holger was holding down the, ba- the bottom. But he was also the guy who was uh, playing that Eno role of adding weird noises and electronics. If you do not know the band Can, I would say you have to go to the first five albums, Monster Movies, Soundtracks, Tago Mago, Iggy Bamyasi, and Future Days. They are essential owning for anyone who cares about adventurous rock and roll. Although in June, a fine singles collection called The Singles came out, double CD, uh, just a couple months ago, that has like all of Can's greatest hits. Mind you, some of those greatest hits are relevant. I'm going to play in homage to Holger, a track called called Alleluia from Tago Mago, a 1971 album. Um, I think it goes on for about 18 or 19 minutes mm-hmm. on the on the album version. It's truncated for that singles record or truncated here for Sound Opinions. But listen to the way the bass ushers this song in. Hallelujah by Can on Sound Opinions. Stand your window low. With love, we 
Hallelujah by Can in tribute to Holger Shukai, dead at the age of 79. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to play some of our favorite songs from late bloomers, artists who didn't achieve success or even start music until later in their lives. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions was produced by the ace team of Brendan Banizak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Well, the telephone is ringing. And my baby's on the line. New messages. Hi, this is Adam calling from San Francisco, and I just wanted to say that the Melvin's interview was fantastic. I'm a big fan. But I have to say, looking a gift horse in the mouth, too much time was spent on Nirvana. That story's been told. Uh, There's so much more about the Melvins, so many interesting collaborations, so many ways that they flew in the face of what was expected. And um, so I really wish the interview would have been A, longer, and B, maybe a little less focused on that part of the story. Really grateful for the interview in the first place. And next time, have them play live, boys. Hey guys, awesome interview with the greatest band on earth, the Melvins. I'm kind of bummed that you didn't talk about the solo Dale Crover record that came out this year. It's called The Fickle Finger of Fate, and it's awesome. Probably one of the best low-key releases of the year. Anyway, great show. Hey guys, this is Doug calling from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm leaving a message about your Back to School episode. One of my favorite Back to School songs is 13 by Big Star, which of course is one of the best Memphis bands of all time. And I just think that it really captures that feeling of being a teenager and the awkwardness of having a crush on somebody and wanting to walk them home from school and the parents you don't like and all that other stuff. And even though I'm in my mid-40s now, it still reminds me of those days. So anyway, I uh, hope you like. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. Won't you tell your dad, get off my back. Tell him what we said about painted black. Hi, this is Mike from Chicago, and I'm calling about your favorite back-to-school songs, and I know this might sound like a stretch, but uh, my favorite back-to-school song is Marvin Gaye, Too Busy Thinking About My Baby, where he uh, actually references economics, zoology, botany, geography, meteorology, and then he says, and I ain't got time to do no studying once I get out of class, and uh, 
Uh, that always makes me think about my high school days. Thank you. Bye. Afternoon, fellas. It's Mike from Pine Grove, PA. Uh, I gotta believe that Stanley Clark's School Days is probably one of my most favorite tunes, being that the fact that it starts out so uh, so raucous with uh, Al Viola's guitar just searing in, in the beginning of the tune, and then you know it bridges down and, and mellows out. So when you reflect back on, on what School Days roar when you first went in there. You know, you were party hardy, and then you, you kind of figured out what you needed to be doing once you got towards the end of, uh, of, of, of your of your terms. And that's all I got to say. Appreciate appreciate you uh, feeling my call. Thank you. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.